Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of our listeners wherever you are on the planet. This is World Smart, a podcast of the Aaron Fox Law Firm. We are your hosts and Aaron Fox International Practice Group co-chairs. I'm Hunter Carter. And I'm Malcolm McNeil, and we'll be talking with partners, other lawyers, special guests about topics of interest in the law of international business and international business. It's a privilege and an honor that we have Ambassador Yvonne Baki, the representative of the government and people of Ecuador in Washington, D.C. So, Ambassador Baki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Hunter. And thank you, Malcolm. It's such a pleasure to be with both of you today. You are a friend of the firm in the sense that we are so proud to be able to work with you through my activities with Global Americans and that you are one of the leading Latinas in Washington, D.C. You've had an illustrious career, in fact, serving the people of Ecuador with many firsts. You were the first woman ambassador from Ecuador, as I understand it. Take us back for a minute so that we know you a little bit better personally. What led you to a career in the diplomatic service and in representing your government? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because by mistake, I always say it, I came into uh, diplomacy and politics by mistake because basically I'm an artist. I was the artist in residence at Harvard University and that's where it all started when I was invited to be the artist in residence. I was the first woman to be artist in residence, the first person, in fact, to be artist in residence. And we created a great foundation, the Arts for Politics the Art for Peace Foundation when I was there. And we started, uh, well, I, then I went to the Kennedy School of Government, but with Professor Roger Fisher, who was my mentor for peace negotiations, we were supposed to be dealing with the negotiations in the Middle East, where I'm from. I'm from Lebanese origin, and the war in Lebanon is what brought me here to the United States. So we were doing that for the Middle East. But then the war between Ecuador and Peru started in 1995. There was, uh, you know, I mean, it's been a long, long war, but in 1995, at uh, that time, the president of Ecuador, Sixto Duran Bajen, called me and wanted uh, Professor Fisher and the negotiations team of conflict management group to come to Ecuador. And it was not a coincidence. They were staying at my place. They were, we were having dinner that night at my home in Boston and Cambridge. And so I told the president, I'll, I'll pass you back to Professor Fisher. And uh, after two days, we were in Ecuador. And that's how my life changed. We negotiated. Negotiations took five years from 1995 to 1998 when there was a historic peace between the two countries and the guarantor countries were the United States, Chile, Brazil, and Argentina. So the signing ceremony was a historic signing ceremony in Brasilia with all the presidents of the guarantor countries pre present there and President Jamil Mawat, who was the president at that time who made the peace between the two countries and Fujimori, president of Peru. So after that, I became ambassador to the United States. So this was my first post in politics and diplomacy, and it was a great experience. It was a great experience. You have been ambassador to the United States twice. You were the first Ecuadorian woman to be ambassador to the United States. You were again appointed more recently. It's fascinating to me that your country has seen a significant increase in the participation in women leadership, particularly in President Lasso's current government and his cabinet. And I've heard you speak of how Washington has changed since your first posting as Ecuador's ambassador, when only two women were serving as ambassadors in all of Washington. Just take a moment and reflect for us and for our readers on this change, both in Washington and in Ecuador, and also on the role of civil society groups in pushing for more seats at the table for women. 
Thank you. Having more women at the table, negotiations of politics, of CEOs of companies, private sector, public sector is so important to make the world a better place, working men and women together. That's what makes it better. But really my experience when I came first here as ambassador, we were only three women ambassadors. And then we were 12. And there was a book written during that time that then there were 12. So it seems that it was working to be a woman ambassador. The doors open better. And it's a different way of negotiation. We see things in a different way. We try to find solutions to the problem by sometimes losing something. You have to lose and lose in order to win. You cannot lose and the other doesn't. It, it's not a win. So that was something that I experienced here with my being in Washington at that time. And, and afterwards, I, I ran for president of Ecuador, as you know. I left here the ambassador during the time of President Clinton and then with President Bush son. And then I ran for president of Ecuador. And it was the first woman to run for president. So it was another experience. I knew I was not going to make it, but it opens the doors to other women to be there. So in Ecuador, we changed a lot. From the, the time I was running, it was in 2002, we didn't have women in positions of power, and we had, but not enough. After that, we've been having a lot of women involved. In fact, at the in Parliament of Ecuador, there were a time that there were three women, the president, the first vice president, and the second vice president as the parliament in Ecuador. Now we have a woman, an indigenous woman, being president of the parliament. So in positions of the cabinet, we have all of them. Before it used to be only the minister of education or the ministry of social work. Oh, these are the positions. Now we have the minister of government, of interior. So it's different. The situation changed. And when I come back this time, the second time as ambassador here, we are... 37 women ambassadors from all over the world. So it's a big change. It's done. Not enough. Here they have around 134 embassies in Washington. So still 37 is not enough, but we're getting there. So yeah, it's a very big change in that part. And many other things, I don't think it's changed too much. We still have the problems in the region, the hemisphere. So I'm trying to push a lot to be giving more attention to the hemisphere. Because, you know, to strengthen the hemisphere will be very positive for the United States. We have everything in our region, and we are seeing that it's being taken by other countries, and we know who. For example, when I was here 22 years ago, the whole region of South America, Central America, the Caribbean, all the hemisphere was the first partner, commercial partner, with the United, trade partner, it was with the United States. Now, you only have two partners with the United States that are sick, Ecuador and Colombia. So a lot of things change in that respect, but it changed backwards, not forward. Well, Malcolm, over to you. That was fascinating. I actually had a different question in mind, but I guess let me start with your comment because I didn't even think of it in those terms. It's going backwards. What kinds of initiatives would need to occur going forward to actually reverse that trend? What is it in either trade policy or hemispheric policy, as you mentioned a moment ago? What can we do or what should the emphasis be? I have been mentioning that since I came with former President Trump and with President Biden now, with all the members of the State Department, the White House, all the institutions that have to do with this, what should be changed? What should be changed is if you want to stop migration, and that's the number one issue that they have in the United States now, what is it that makes people want to come to the United States? It's because in their countries, they don't have the opportunities. 
whether it's because of wars, I mean, of, of problems of narco-trafficking, of problems of poverty, of problems of lack of democracy, because we are seeing more countries going into extreme left, and the influence it's coming from China, from Russia, from Iran, from everywhere. It's coming to the hemisphere, because it's a rich hemisphere. It's very wealthy, so they want to invest there. But we are not seeing the people getting jobs that they are supposed to be getting. Because those countries, that when they come to invest, they invest, but they bring their own people to work. So it's not generating the jobs for the people. And that's why we are seeing more migration coming and more problems. And what we're seeing with Venezuela, the migration to our countries, we're seeing immigration in Colombia to our countries, to Ecuador, we have it from before. And we see Central America, the issues of people coming and they have a trade agreement. So if they have a trade agreement with the United States, what's happening? Something is wrong. It's because we are still, the United States is not prioritizing the hemisphere. They are prioritizing Europe, Asia, but not the hemisphere. And this is what they have to start thinking. It's positive. It's a very good strategy for the United States. It's a national security for the United States to prioritize the hemisphere. What they did in Europe. If you see Europe, they have different religion, different languages, different ideologies. And still they decided to help each other and to open borders, not only for trade, but for the people too. So... They were helping strong countries like Germany and France. They started helping those that were economically weaker, and that's why they could open their borders. So this has to happen here, too. I think it's happening. They are doing it, but it's not a priority, and they need to see it as a priority. For example, Summit of the Americas. You know when was the last Summit of the Americas? 1994. And now we're supposed to have the summit. It was postponed again. It was supposed to happen at the beginning, and now it's happening later. So we are not seeing as a priority the hemisphere, and that's what's missing, you know, the missing part. But that's why others come and invest, and they are taking over. Well, let me ask you a follow-up on that, because the question that seems to be dealt with in our podcasts up to now in the last year have been the impacts of COVID on different economies. What has the impact of COVID in Ecuador, and has it slowed this progress? Well, in Ecuador, this was the first country that was infected when when nobody knew what it was. Because, you know, in Guayaquil, where I was born in Guayaquil, it's a coastal area. They have vacation for school in February, March, April. So they travel. People that travel to Europe, the majority went to Europe, to Italy, to uh, those places that had COVID. And when they came back, the first city that got it was Guayaquil. And it was very, very, very bad because we didn't know what it was. So it took a lot of effort to do it. And we realized how to do it because of that. So at that time, it was President Moreno, and he worked very hard to fight it. But it was difficult because we didn't have the means to do it, though President Trump was helping a lot. At that time, there were no vaccines yet. So they helped us a lot with ventilators, with medicines, with things that were needed at that moment that we were seeing what we can do about it. But then when President Biden came and President Lasso came in Ecuador from both sides, the vaccines were there and the priority number one of President Lasso was vaccination and was COVID-19. That was priority number one without forgetting the economy, but concentrating in COVID. And the Minister of Health of Ecuador is a fantastic woman, Jimena Garzón. They work together with the private sector, with the military, with the academics, with the church, everybody united to work together to get vaccination everywhere. So they organized it in such a way that we became the number one country that has done the vaccines 
in the majority, if you take the percentages, it's number one in the world. So now we are 77% vaccinated completely of the population. So it did a great job. We became number one in the world of the way it was done because of the experience and because of the decision of President Lasso to make it a priority. So it's affecting, of course it's affecting. Of course it affected it economically, it affected us socially, it affected politically, but we are over it now. Excellent. Hunter? Glad to hear that. I have been so impressed with the progress that President Lasso and your government made with rolling out the vaccine very rapidly. And I was there at the uh, speech that he gave in New York during the UN General Assembly week that I think impressed everyone with tackling that complicated problem. There are other complicated problems that need to be addressed. Let's talk about trade, for example. I know it is a very high priority of your president and of your government to have, as he says, more of Ecuador and the world and more of the world in Ecuador. What is your government's strategy for doing that? First, we had a great summit of opportunities of investment in Ecuador two weeks ago. We just mentioned that the president wants more Ecuador in the world and more world in Ecuador. So number one priority is to get investment and also do trade with the 10 strongest economies in the world. So we are not as with the United States only, but with everyone that we could have trade that we are, we are selling our products. Still, the number one trade partner of Ecuador is the United States. So it's a priority number one. So when I came, I was ambassador in Qatar before coming here. And when I came, it was with President Lenin Moreno, whose priority was to make a trade agreement. And we started working for the trade agreement. We got the phase one, that they call it. There were few countries that were having the phase one agreement. It was in Latin America, it was Brazil and Ecuador. So we concentrated very much on that. And it was very positive. We had the first round. And then when President Biden came, the only country I think that is continuing with that is Ecuador, because Brazil dropped out from this phase one. We are the ones that are continuing. And in fact, we're going to have in January the uh, meetings for the TIC, you know, the Trade Investment Council. And we are starting the phase two. So we're going the right direction. There are still problems because according to what the government of President Biden, they are seeing that the trades are not being successful. That's what they are saying. They see, for example, trade with Central America and there are still migration. Why this is happening if they have trade and they have investment with Mexico, with Central America, with us also in our countries. You know, when I was Minister of Trade in 2003, we did a trade agreement with Colombia and Peru. We were negotiating together and we were signing together the trade agreement between the three countries. The moment we were signing, the government of President Lucio Gutierrez at that time fell. So the President Palacio, who's advisor, economic advisor was former President Correa before he became minister. They stopped it. So we had to withdraw and we were already signing with Colombia and Peru and the United States. So we went backwards a lot. Now we are starting again, but not from zero because we already negotiated everything like Colombia and Peru. So we just had to adhere to that. But with the modernization that they did during President Trump's term, in Mexico, with the NAFTA, Canada, we are going to be having to be doing the negotiations with the modernization, which is very positive for us. So in the phase one that we did, and now we're going to do it in the phase two, it's about that, about the things that we have to change. Labor, the role of women, the small and medium industries, some of the sensitive products. But this is what we have to modernize. So it's not going to be that difficult. It's not negotiating from zero because we have done it already. And the environment for us is very important. And now the environment for the government of President Biden, it's also very important. So we are in the best position with the, the new administration here in the United States. 
You know, when it comes to international trade, the term modern agreements is sometimes used, a modern trade agreement. Sure, you're familiar with that term. In order to address the modern issues that trade agreements have to address, and indeed your country had a government a couple of presidents ago that tore up the trade agreements, that canceled them, that tried to exit from them. Tell us from your perspective, you've mentioned what the U.S. is looking for. From Ecuador's perspective, what's important to have in a modern trade agreement? Well, I believe in modern trade. I call them the fair trade agreement because modernizing it, it's, it's being fair with everyone that's involved. Don't forget that we have technology now and technology is everything. So we cannot do agreements without giving technology to the rural areas in places where they're remote. So this is very important. That's something that is put in the phase one. So technology, environmental protection, taking care of, of the environment, which is something that we care very much in Ecuador about. So these two issues are very important for us, and they are now in the modernization. What's something else they put, it's the, the helping the medium, small and medium industries and concentrating on women. This is something that not other country has done, not even with the modernization of the USMCA. It's only with the phase one agreement with Ecuador that we put that. And it's very, very positive for us. So, yeah, I think modernization is living in the moment where we are now. Now we are working in a different world. Everything is based on having the latest technologies, helping each other, because that's the important between our government in Ecuador and the United States. We complement each other. What the United States doesn't have, we have, which is agricultural products, organic products, the best kind of products. And what we don't have is technology that we need very much. So this is something that I'm sure it's going to happen soon, hopefully next year. When you look at the industries that Ecuador hopes to promote and protect, one of its most important industries, of course, is fishing and aquaculture. I'm sure you're familiar with the story that the Associated Press ran a couple of months ago on giant Chinese fishing fleets that was entitled the Great Wall of Lights. These large fishing fleets that are now coming close to the Pacific coast of South America. Tell us, how does that affect Ecuador and, and its fishing industry? And how would a closer U.S. relationship, especially with modern trade features, how would that help Ecuador? You know, this is another of the very important issues that we've been facing since last government, the last administration here, and now the new administration. The concentration of the Galapagos that we have done just recently, that President Lasso announced in Glasgow, of expanding the protected marine reserve of Ecuador, of Galapagos, it was very positive, and it's meant for that mostly, to get more protection in the areas and expand the protected areas. But the thing with the fleets that they come, it's not that they enter inside the protected area or the, our lands. It's just they stay outside. But you know, in, in oceans there are no barriers, <laughs> so you can fish. And they are using our fishermen. They go and they give them the fish. So they are paying them something minimal, but it still is money and they take them. So mostly it's the giant squids, calamars, the, the giant calamars they were taking. So we were being negotiating very hard with China, the president, uh, now it's uh, talking with them. They have a moratorium of fishing the giant well, squids, uh, calamars. But now we are going to expand the protection and we are having agreements with the United States. They are helping us with trade radars 
in order for us to be more protected. So this is an issue that it's causing a lot of difficulties because we have not only problems in the ocean, especially from the Galapagos, of fishing, but also drugs, narco-trafficking. So it's mixing with both things. So that's why we need to have opportunities for the people to have good jobs in order for them not to go into drugs. And Ecuador, sadly, is not anymore like it was before, just uh, passing through drugs or money laundering. It's becoming more of than that. So this is something that we have to be working together with the United States, and we are doing that, protecting that. Another issue of the talking about the fish, shrimps, for example, is number one income of Ecuador now. It used to be oil, the number one source of income of Ecuador. Now it's becoming shrimps, seafood, but shrimp especially. And recently, just... Two days ago, the announcement of that the number one partner of selling shrimps is what China. Now it is the United States. Recently, it's two weeks ago. So this is very positive. So we're selling here our shrimps. So this is something that will help very much the relations that we have between the two countries. So yeah, fishing is something that is causing a lot of trouble in the oceans, especially because we have the Galapagos Islands and it's something that it's protected and they are taking all the seafood from there. The shark fins, when I was Minister of Trade and Industry and Fisheries, it was terrible. You know, it was not now the fleet only that came. At that time, there was a big ship that was stopped. You know how many sharks were inside there? 7,000. Wow. And what do they do with them? They cut the, the fins and they throw them. So it's a fincher. So we have been working very much with different uh, groups like Wild Aid, which are member of Wild Aid, to promote in China and everywhere the consciousness of people, you know, we use, for example, Jack Yao Ming, Jackie Shang, who are talking all the time, the TSAs that we send, that the fishing is not healthy for the oceans because if you lose the sharks, it's number one on the line of the fisher. So you lose the whole fish and it's created a lot of problems in the oceans, not only in Ecuador and the Galapagos, but everywhere in the world because of the freeds of the Chinese that are going everywhere and they have aimed to do it even more. So something has to be stopped and they have to create conscious about that and uh, talk about the importance of stopping this over greed for seafood that's going to stop because of so much fishing, you know, when you fish so much, there will be lack of it. So there will be no more fish in very near time. You've identified a number of ways the U.S. and Ecuador can cooperate to the advantage of both. I know Malcolm has a question about another area where U.S.-Ecuadorian cooperation can be a win-win, and that's in the anti-corruption space. I saw that President Lasso made an important announcement last week about a national commission. We welcome all kinds of tools for anti-corruption, including compliance measures. Malcolm, I'll turn it over to you to take it from there. It ties into another area too, Ambassador, and that is that one of my Peruvian clients who is investing here was having an interesting discussion with me over their instability in politics and what they're going through presently. And part of that discussion was, of course, on corruption. So I guess the more general question is, what steps do you think are necessary now or being implemented now in order to install, let's say, effective anti-corruption policies and tying to my conversation that that I mentioned earlier with my Peruvian client, is that instability in Peru affecting Ecuador in any fashion? Well, instability in any place in the world affects us all. You know, we are so interconnected in the world that no matter what economic instability, if something goes less in the economy, it affects all the economies. If something goes out, look, COVID, it started in China. <laughs> look where we are. 
I mean, it's all over the world. So we are interconnected. So corruption is something that it's not just in our countries, in the region. It's everywhere. And it's something that we have to start working very hard on it because we're seeing that people enter politics with an idea of helping and then they get corrupt. <laughs> and it's the greed, you know, that they see so much. And they're talking about what is the number one source of corruption. We see that it's narco-trafficking, right? Now, now it's human trafficking, number one. Mm-hmm. So this is a kind of corruption too. It's not just about putting money and taking money, but also how they are doing it in ways. So they are seeing that now the cocaine and, uh, and marijuana and all these things that for Afghanistan got money or corruption because of that, because of marijuana and all this. We are seeing it everywhere in the world. In our region, it's drugs, cocaine. And so this is what corrupts people. For example, I give you an example. In the northern frontier of Ecuador with, with Peru, with Colombia, and in the southern with Peru, they have two frontiers. So the people, they work there. They have the income for something that in agriculture, but it's very little. It's not enough for the families. And when the drug lords come and they tell them, we'll buy your land here, you can put cocaine, and we give you thousands of dollars, they will do it. If you're a father or mother that have five children and you cannot feed them, what will you do? You will say, yep, yeah, I will give you that. So this is contaminating societies in a terrible way. And why I mentioned that? Because this is the source of all corruption. It's money. And where is the money coming from? Drugs, arms, human trafficking, all these kind of things that it's so much. So a solution has to be found in this level of everything. Either discriminalizing drugs to lower the cost, the price, doing things that are getting this less. I mean, this is unacceptable what's going on. When you sell the oil underground pre-sale to China, they are giving a lot of money for controlling. So they come and control. They bring their people. So this has to be stopped. I mean, something has to be stopped. The United States has to enter the region, the hemisphere, and say, this is enough. All this visa that they are stopping for the people that are doing corruption, they have to do it more. I was going to say, you, you made me jump in because I was going to ask that very same question. My, as you know, Hunter's practice has a Latin American uh, emphasis and my practice has an Asian emphasis. And the fishing issues, by the way, exist regionally in the South China Sea and elsewhere, as you may know. And there's an article in The Economist. There's been several articles in The Economist over the debt that's been created by certain countries in favor of China. And the question is, has that impacted or does that affect your negotiation? Negotiations or your discussions on trade issues with China? Uh, do you find that China has been, let's say, overbearing or staunch in its position because of that? Do they use the debt as a leverage or are they uh, more even-handed? What is your experience? They do. For example, I was representing the Yasuni National Park. As you remember, a few years ago, I was representing the Amazon to preserve the Amazon by keeping the oil underground and getting money from the world in order to save that. It's like a swap environment for that. So it was too avant-garde. I mean, if it was now, it would have been great, but it started before the COP21 in France. It was before that. So it was new. Europe was very much with us, but the United States was not at that time. So uh, they were saying in the Arab world also that oil means that they cannot accept that oil. It's the one that's contaminating. So of course it's not, but it's not only oil, but it's number one. So in our region, in Amazon, of course it does, because we are so biodiverse that if you take oil from out, you destroy the whole atmosphere. It's not like a desert in Saudi Arabia. It's a very rich area. So you know what China did? 
They said, we pay you $5 billion for the Yasuni ITT port because it's the number one source of oil in Ecuador. 20% of the oil of Ecuador is there. And they paid that pre-sale. It was pre-sold, our oil for 2027. So what? it's a control, right? It's a kind of control. Talking about the relations between China and Ecuador are very good. President Lasso is going to China. He's going to have it. Also, they're going to make a negotiation trade agreement, a trade agreement. So we are friends, but there are points that you cannot accept. And this is one of them. You cannot come and do investment in places like this and take the oil and not put the right environmental protection for the people because this is the area that it's full of water, the Amazon. So they take the oil and it contaminates the rivers and they live from the rivers. So these people are getting cancer, they are getting sick, they are dying since long, long time. We have a lot of issues from a long time because of that. So, yeah, we can't cut relations because they are our partner, China also, but we have to put uh, red lines, you know. Is there anything that the U.S. can do in its policy to serve as an effective counterweight in that? For example, our own agreements. I think the Build Back Better World, it's something that they are putting to do that. Nearshoring, bringing the investments from there to our region, that should have been done a long time ago. It was started also, President Trump was doing the nearshoring, and now with the Build Back Better World, we are the first ones to be visited by the United States. They came. Um, from the White House, uh, the, the DFC, uh, the, the State Department, that Ecuador was the first country to be visited and the meeting with President Lasso. That was last month, and it was for that. Uh, Secretary Blinken came also to Ecuador, also a few weeks ago, and it was for that. What can we do more in order? They don't say, don't be in China, but they say, we are giving you a better way. You have the choice. We have the choice. We cannot stop China because we need, Ecuador needs money and they are giving us without conditions. <laughs> so the condition is, of course, that they invest, that they bring their companies, but they are putting the money. So what we need is to get U.S. involved. And that's what President Lasso wants, wants U.S. to get more involved. And it's getting, we are getting there. Ambassador, you've spoken very colorfully and interestingly about the role of the United States vis-a-vis Ecuador as one of its key partners in South America and in terms of the broader global relationship. And I have a question for you that goes back to Malcolm's point about significant political change, such as we've seen with the election of the new president in Peru. There are elections in Santiago. There are two very opposite candidates running in Brazil for the presidency. And if polls are to believed, it could represent a change very much back to the other side. I know you sustained very successful relationships with President Trump, whom I understand you have known for many years, but as ambassador, you had a very good relationship with President Trump and you have a very good relationship now with President Biden. Based on your experience, how can countries navigate these wide swings with politics in the region and how can the United States maintain solid, enduring relationships with countries through these significant political changes? Well, that's a great question, really, um, Hunter. Look, what I believe is that what's happening in the region is happening in the United States. I mean, it's happening in the hemisphere. In our, it's happening here, too. I mean, you are here, too, also with two uh, extremes. I mean, <laughs> what's going on in the United States, it, it's never seen before. So the divisions are bigger. What is it that the people want? What I'm realizing, whoever I ask, what makes you happy? Whoever you ask, they will tell you to be accepted in society as a human being, as a person, to have a good job in order to live well and to dream to be better. 
for our children to our children and grandchildren will be better. That's what makes a person happy. They don't care if you are from the extreme left or extreme right or the center. They don't care. It's no more like before. Ideologies, that's why they ask me always. You, they say, Yvonne is with every government from Ecuador, with every government with Lebanon, with everything. I say, no, I am with the people of Ecuador, with the people of Lebanon, my other country. I am with the people because you, as a politician, have to be for the people. That's what politics means, for the people. So it doesn't matter for a person to be left or right. When you are young, you always think to be helping the social and you become socialist. When you get older, you see that you have to be capitalist. But there is a medium term, social capitalism, being, dreaming to have more, having more, but also helping, making money with the right, giving with the left. So this is the two, and this is what is not being seen. They are still the politicians, they think that they have their own group here. Oh, they are swinging. Even here, you don't see their dependents more than before because they don't want to be Democrats because it's going to left. They don't want to be Republicans because they are going to right. So it's in the center. And we are seeing that in our countries. Look, Peru, they had two candidates extremes, Keiko Fujimori and Castillo. One big left, one extreme right. So there was nothing in between. So this is the vision of the people because they don't know who is in the center. The same is in, in Chile now, extreme right and extreme left. <laughs> so what's going on? What's going on is the people are not satisfied with politicians. There should be a new way of thinking, helping the human. It doesn't matter who you are. The best person that thinks that it's already beyond ideology, that is going to come to help the whole country, not half of the country, the whole country. And this is what has to be. It's a new way of thinking, new world order. Now the number one thing that is popular in the world is social media. Because we're interconnected, because they can feel that they are human beings. They, are, they, are, they can be strong by giving their, their views in social media. So you cannot hide anything anymore. Everything is there. Everything is there. You, don't, you get the news before it happens in another place with the different of our, you get it in your phone, in your hand. So we have to think different. And I think that this is the moment to do it after COVID-19. It's a wake-up call. You know, you talk very effectively, Ambassador, about a new way of thinking, about modern agreements, about social capitalism as a way to strike a new future uh, after the wake-up call between, after COVID, to strike a new future between the extremes of politics. I can see why you've been such a successful diplomat. I'm very grateful for the time you've spent with us today on our podcast. I'm sure our listeners will find it terribly valuable. Malcolm, any final words? Yes. Well, first of all, it's been very enlightening, and we do very much appreciate your taking the time out of your busy schedule. And I say that not as a patronizing comment, but because I can tell from your comments that you're pretty vocal in your discussions with people and Frank, and, I, and we appreciate that. Pleasure, really, being with you.